Hey, Missing listeners, we wanted to pop in and bring you a bonus episode of Crawl Space. Crawl Space is one of our other podcasts, and it's true crime. And sometimes we have interviews with authors, and this one, we thought it especially valuable to bring it to our missing listeners. In this episode, we spoke with Jillian Peterson of The Violence Project. You can find out what she does at theviolenceproject.org. Be sure to visit that website and check out the work that they do over there. It's a mass shooting database. And Jillian, with her colleague James Densley, wrote a book called The Violence Project, How to Stop a Mass Shooting Epidemic. And they're a wealth of knowledge. And uh, again, this is an important episode, an important interview to listen to, no matter what feed you're listening to it on. And please subscribe to Crawlspace in your favorite podcatcher. Thanks a lot for listening. Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? It's a fantastic day, Tim. I'm doing great. I hope everyone out there is doing great. How are you doing today? I am doing great as well. Thanks a lot for asking. This episode today is, is a wonderful conversation with a very, very smart person. Her name is Dr. Jillian Peterson. She's a forensic psychologist, a violence researcher, and a co-founder and an author, but the co-founder of The Violence Project. Right. The Violence Project is also a book called The Violence Project, How to Stop a Mass Shooting Epidemic. It was written by her, Jillian Peterson, and her partner, James Densley. And that's how we heard about this. What they've done is created a comprehensive database of all mass public shootings from the year 1966 to 2020. And it's coded on nearly 200 uh, variables, life history variables, which include like mental health, trauma, interest in past shootings, and situational triggers. So make sure to check out The Violence Project at theviolenceproject.org, and you can get the book. It's called Violence Project, How to Stop a Mass Shooting Epidemic. It's incredibly interesting information, and I know that you're going to love this conversation. And Tim, we're excited to say that we are going to CrimeCon this year. It's the first CrimeCon that we've been to in about 100 years. It's in Las Vegas. It is at the end of April, the 29th, the 30th, and the 1st. And if you're waiting on something to convince you to go to CrimeCon, if you had not pulled the trigger on those standard badges yet, you can use promo code CRAWLSPACE for 10% off those standard badges. And you can see us there on Podcast Row with all the other amazingly beautiful podcasters. I can't wait, Lance. It is going to be a blast. It's probably going to be just like The Hangover. Well, you can expect to see me in my Elvis attire on the strip doing my best impersonation. Well, thank you very much, Lance. And thank you to our listeners. Uh, please follow us on Twitter. We're at CrawlSpacePod. And you can use code CrawlSpace and get 10% off your pass, your standard badge to CrimeCon at CrimeCon.com. So check that out. We really hope to see you there. And enjoy this interview with a fantastically smart person, Dr. Jillian Peterson.
If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the podcast, Jillian Peterson of The Violence Project. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? We're doing so well. We had to postpone this interview because of uh, COVID-related issues, but we got it on track. And it actually was a good thing because it, it gave us a little bit more time to interpret and ingest all of the work that you folks do at The Violence Project. And Tim and I were talking before you hopped on. First of all, I brought my pencil sharpener because I'm going to be taking a lot of notes and I need to make sure my pencil is at the ready. And I just don't even know where to start with you. I don't know where to start with what you do to articulate how important this is. So introduce yourself and, and let people know where you started. Sure. So I am Jillian Peterson. I am a psychologist by training. I am a professor of criminology and criminal justice at Hamlin University and then co-president of The Violence Project, which is now a nonpartisan nonprofit research center that's focused on reducing violence with data and research. Incredible. And who else is part of the team that makes up The Violence Project? Yeah, my collaborator and co-president is Dr. James Densley, who's a sociologist um, and a professor at Metropolitan State University. And then we have a lot of different students and interns and volunteers that kind of help us analyze data, build databases, create visuals, turn data into policy. And the website is theviolenceproject.org. And on that website, you can go to many different facets like the mass shooter database, the book, the amazing book, and the off-ramp project. And we'll get to all of these in a little bit. But what was the first instance in your professional career or just even in your personal life where you looked at the epidemic of mass shootings and, and you decided that the logical approach would be through collecting data and and approaching it that way and, and sort of taking it by the horns in that end instead of banning guns, like instead of doing the typical like tropey things. Yeah, I started out my career before I was an academic. I started as an investigator and I worked for the New York City Capitol Defender's Office, which was public defender's office that worked on death penalty cases in New York City. And I was like 22 to what, 26 when I was doing it and spent all my time on Rikers Island talking to men who were facing the death penalty. And it was my job to put together their life history. We called them biopsychosocial developmental life histories that kind of mapped out how this person got to the point of committing murder. So we would look at their life history starting generations back and how that story built to the point of murder and what that pathway looked like. And we had a saying in that office, which was the worse the crime, the worse the story. And it was always true that you would see these kind of horrific stories leading up to this point of murder. And that didn't excuse the murder by any means, but it helped kind of make sense of it, right? And so that's the perspective that I bring into my work, that I bring into my research. And when it came to mass shootings, it was clear to us about five years ago now that we didn't understand what that trajectory looked like. We had no idea what that pathway to this point of violence was. We knew mass shootings were increasing with frequency. We knew they were getting more deadly. 
we knew people were terrified, but we didn't know who these perpetrators were. And because we didn't know who they were, we were building bulletproof doors and running and hiding and fighting and, you know, deciding was it guns or was it mental health, but we didn't have any data to ground these conversations. So that was kind of the origin of the database. Okay. So the goal was to learn more about the perpetrators and, uh, and the perpetrators are people who commit mass shootings. Is that correct? Yeah, so we're, we were interested in a pretty narrow definition of mass shootings. There's lots of definitions out there and you can get lots of different figures and statistics depending on how you define it. We were interested in this really sort of narrow definition, which is four or more people killed in a public space. The victims are random that don't have a relationship with the perpetrator. So they're not killing family members. It's not in the course of another felony. It's not kind of retaliatory violence. These are really public mass shootings in public spaces where the person comes in hoping to kill as many people as possible. And when you came up with that definition, the four or more and not related, that that's, that's you folks. So the Violence Project came up with that or was that taken from another study? No, we didn't come up with that. So up until that point, that was kind of the standard definition used by the FBI. And we did get a grant from the National Institute of Justice. And that was the definition that they used as well. So it's kind of the longstanding traditional definition. Gotcha. Okay. That's that's super interesting. And how did you come about putting together this database? Uh, I know you sort of answered that a little bit, but if you go to this website and you go to the database, you can just hover the cursor over the hundreds of pictures that you have, and it gives you the date of the shooting. And I, I think the first one's in uh, 1961. Is that the first one? We started off with a shooting in 1966, which is, it's the Texas Bell Tower shooting, which is known as kind of the first modern day mass shooting because it was live streamed on television when it happened. And so we started with that one. We used existing databases that are out there. We did our own research um, to try to come up with a comprehensive list of perpetrators who met that definition from 1966 to the present. So right now there's about 180 perpetrators. Then we started thinking about all the different life history pieces of information that we wanted to code. And we started off with about 50 different things that we wanted to code. So everything from early childhood trauma to had they recently lost their job to did they use substances, you know, had they been diagnosed with a mental illness, anything that was coming up in the media and people were talking about that we could say, okay, let's build the data here. Just adding variables and adding variables. And now it's over 200. So we also built a victim's database and a guns database. Um, and a lot of that, this is really kind of a public criminology project, people would use the database and come back to us and say, you know, what was the time period between when they bought their gun and when they did the shooting? It'd be like, great variable, let's add it. And so a lot of this has been this kind of living, breathing thing with the thousands of people who are interacting with the database. And are you like literally you behind the scenes working on this database, working on the website and putting it together like this? I'm me, literally me leading it team of students doing it. Okay, uh, <laughs> yes, it's amazing. The students that started off working on this project were volunteers and we quickly realized how much better they were than James and I at kind of digging around the dark corners of the internet and finding pieces of information that was publicly available. So we leave it to people a bit younger than us. <laughs> so do we. <laughs> <laughs> what is the 
significance of representing what type of weapon was used because for example we'll stick to the um to the austin texas one the the tower shooting not only do you list like the signs of crisis that the perpetrator was going through you you break down like the specs on the person you know white was was this person an immigrant no education so i get like that part like looking at who the person was and, and their past and where they came from what's the significance of then furthermore going into the breakdown of what weapons they use because one i didn't know that this person used seven weapons during the shooting and then you you further say how they acquired the weapons and if it had a modification i'm just astounded by this so what's the significance in showing the weapons and where it came from in the background of the weapon itself yeah we added that weapons database a couple of years ago mostly to help our policy conversations i think we get so stuck because we don't have the data to ground us. So we wanted to build a weapons database so you could say, okay, if we say banned assault weapons, how many people would be alive today? If we did this thing, how many people would be alive today? What's interesting is the most common gun used is a handgun, which I didn't know, a legally acquired handgun, right? And it's usually acquired immediately before the shooting. So there's things that we can learn from the data, patterns that we can find from the data that can help us think about what types of policy is going to be the most effective. The goal of the whole project was always to provide data to ground our conversations to move us forward on prevention so we stop getting stuck in this kind of fear-based decision-making. Yeah, kind of an echo chamber uh, when you when you hear certain things. Uh, that's interesting. Did you know that this database was going to lead you to write this book? No, this has kind of just been like this one step at a time. It kind of just kept getting bigger and we kind of just kept going. But there was a lot of media attention on the database. Once we released it publicly, there was a lot of different sort of journalists and policymakers and students using it. And then one thing we decided as we were building this database is that would be really helpful to actually talk to some of the perpetrators. And I think this comes from my background as an investigator who worked with perpetrators is you can find all these patterns in the data and you can tell all these stories statistically. But I started thinking it would be so helpful if we could talk to these perpetrators and have them in their own words kind of tell their story of how they got to that point and then see how that mapped on with the data. The problem is the majority of mass shooters die during mass shootings. So initially, I think we had around 150 perpetrators in the database when we started sending out letters and we could find 32 of them who were alive and in prison. And so we just sent letters saying like, hey, we're researchers, we're interested in learning about your life. We're not interested in talking about the shooting. We are only interested in that pathway that got you to that point. We're not going to pay you. We're not going to give you, you know, fame and fortune. Every oh, This is all anonymous. And to our surprise, seven of them wrote us back and said that they would be willing to talk. And so we started interviewing perpetrators. That led to interviewing family members of perpetrators, people who knew them growing up. We talked to victims. We talked to first responders. And as we started gathering these stories, it was really clear that we needed to write a book, that the only way to kind of do these stories justice was to put them together in a way that could really kind of move us forward in terms of prevention. So the story kind of presented itself to you, not the narrative that you hear in the media, but once you did the the work and got the numbers, um, sort of a different narrative appeared to you. Yeah, exactly. We started, I mean, A, 
these are complex stories. And I think in the media, we try to have these conversations in a really simple way, that if we just do this one thing, that's the thing. And it was really clear that there's a lot of things, right? There's a lot of different intervention points, but we started seeing these patterns in these stories over time where you could say, okay, early childhood trauma, this is really common. How do we kind of tell this story using the voices of the perpetrators, using the voices of people who knew them, using the statistics, putting that all together to say, okay, if we were going to intervene at this point, what could that look like? And you had said uh, that most of the uh, shooters die, you know, obviously during the uh, the mass shooting event. Do you think that that's their intent or expectation going into the shooting? Or is that something that maybe is a 50-50 thing? It does seem to be their intent. So one early finding was that these acts, they're horrific homicides, but they're suicides as well. That a person kind of only decides to go and do this when they no longer want to go on living and this is intended to be their final act. So a lot of them plan to kill themselves in the shooting. A lot of them plan to be shot by police in the shooting. Some of them just don't care but nobody has an escape plan. So this is intended to be this big final act. This is how they air their grievance to the world. This is how they're known in their death in a way that they weren't known in life. And in many ways, it makes it a really different crime than other forms of sort of homicide and violence because there's that suicidality component to it. Do these kinds of mass shootings happen more often in America? And do you think the culture is partially to blame. And I guess that that goes into the previous, um, your previous answer, I think as well. Yes. America certainly has way more than their fair share of mass shootings, that it really is a uniquely American phenomenon. They occur in other countries, but not at the rates that they do here. And so the second chapter in our book is actually called America. And we tried to really dig in and think about why that is. Certainly, we have easier access to guns um, than other countries, but we think it's more than that. And so in that chapter, we write about things like this idea of the American dream, this idea that if you work hard, you get what you're owed. And we saw that kind of in these perpetrators that they were not at the point in life that they wanted to be. They were angry, they were frustrated whether it was because of their job or because they couldn't get a relationship or whatever it was, they were at a point where they were feeling really kind of hopeless and depressed. And it goes from this kind of what's wrong with me. And then there's this shift and it's like, what's wrong with everybody else and whose fault it is. And then they find somebody to blame. That does seem to have some uniquely American roots. We also saw things like the lack of social safety net in America contributing. So for example, people who do employment-based shootings, so who kill people at their workplace, it's almost exclusively right after they've been fired. And that loss of a job, that loss of identity is so crushing that they decide to sort of go out in this horrific suicide homicide. And so I think there's a number of things we can think about when we think about why America, but certainly it's occurring this country in ways it's not occurring across the world. You said that there were intervention points that need to be addressed. How do you how do you identify that and how do you how do you do that? Like what's the process once you've identified those? Yeah, so we in looking at these life histories both in terms of the interviews and in terms of the database, we saw these consistent patterns. And it was each person had this really different trajectory. But over and over again, we were seeing really significant trauma 
we were seeing a noticeable crisis point where something flipped and the person is acting differently and people around them are noticing it. We identified being actively suicidal and talking about that. Leakage was really common, which is when you tell other people about your plans or you kind of indicate that you're thinking about this more common than we expected. Getting radicalized online was really common. Um, and then, of course, there's access to weapons. And so as we looked at each of those kind of common features, we thought about, OK, what would be the intervention if you were going to intervene here? What would that look like? So the last chapter of our book is called Hope. And we really go through and identify like 33 different things that are kind of data-driven solutions based on what we know, none of them are perfect. But if you start doing enough of them and piling enough of them on top of each other, you get to something that could really be effective. Yeah, it seems like it takes people around the shooters, the perpetrators to notice these warning signs, you know, to put something into place. And then I start thinking about myself, like if some, like a friend was exhibiting these kind of warning signs, like what would I do? And it's just so hard to even say. It is. It really is. And, you know, we talked to moms of perpetrators. Those are actually some of the most crushing interviews, I think, to conduct because of just the level of guilt that a lot of these women carried. And one mom in particular was like, I knew something was wrong. I was scared he was going to do something. But what do you do? Call the police on your own kid and say, I'm worried he might do something in the future, right? You can't even do that. And she had no idea who she was supposed to call or what she was supposed to do. That was kind of what prompted us to build the website Off-Ramps is that Off-Ramp site has resources in crisis intervention, mental health, suicide prevention. We created some training videos around how to do crisis intervention work, how to, when you're worried about someone, kind of what to say and do and respond. And we've been doing a lot of work with schools recently as well, helping them kind of build systems to identify this type of behavior and how to intervene, which after the recent Oxford High School shooting has been getting a lot more attention. Amazing work. Good for you. You also mentioned this shift, and I thought it was fascinating because it was something that you don't realize is there, but you knew it was there kind of subconsciously. You said that they shift from what's wrong with me to what's wrong with everyone else. And I mean, you, you, I guess everyone knows that that's a thing, but I'd never heard that verbalized before. So it's fascinating to think about. And then I started thinking, are you expecting to see more of these shifts now that we're I guess, coming out of a pandemic after people have gone through something that they've never gone through before, isolation and anxiety. Are you expecting more of these shifts where people go back into society and, and realize like, oh my, something's wrong with these people around me? Yeah. There was a lot of people thinking about kind of what was, what impact was the pandemic going to have on these mass shootings? And what we saw is during that kind of first year of the pandemic, when we were really locked down here, mass shootings, this specific type of public mass shootings where you're firing indiscriminately disappeared, they were gone, right? And part of that is public spaces just weren't open, certainly. Part of that could have been that we were all going through this kind of collective trauma horror show that maybe your own personal experience didn't feel quite as crushing because we were all kind of in it together. There's some scholars who have been thinking about that, but they disappeared. And then when we started opening back up, so like March, April of last year, that's when we saw 
there was the worst two month span that we've ever had in this country. I think there was five starting with the, the spa shooting in Atlanta. And then there was a series right after that. Then they kind of faded away again. Now we just had the Oxford shooting and the number of threats that have happened to schools since the Oxford shooting is just astronomical. That's another thing that we track is threats to schools, Um, just hundreds of threats every day. So it kind of goes in these waves um, where you'll see a bunch of mass shootings. They do tend to cluster. Part of that is because they're socially contagious and the media covers them and then other people follow and then they kind of fade and then they come back. What we do know is that a lot of risk factors for mass shootings. So things like right trauma, isolation, depression, hopelessness, a lot of that was sort of exacerbated during the pandemic and we had record gun sales. So I myself am concerned that we are going to continue to see more and more of this as we continue to reopen. That's interesting. And um, I think a a very uh, valid fear or concern at this point. Can you tell us a little bit about childhood trauma? I think you'd mentioned it earlier. Is that one of the the biggest connections in uh, mass shooters? Um, It's one. I'm not sure I'd say it's the biggest, but it's something, especially when we were doing the interviews that we found consistently. It's harder to identify early childhood trauma sometimes using publicly available records that doesn't always make the media. But when we started doing interviews, we saw it again and again, and this is really significant stuff. So physical and sexual abuse, parents dying by suicide, kind of abandonment, really significant things. And I should also mention the database is 99% men, right? So really significant things happening at early ages to young boys without any support or resources to kind of deal and cope with that. And so that does seem to be kind of an early root where this type of violence stems from. And there's a um, frightening, another frightening statistic on your website that shows hate and fame-seeking mass shootings are rapidly increasing. I mean, I get the hate one. Um, How does does one become a mass shooter because they're seeking fame? I I get that, but explain that a little more to me. And, And why do you think that those categories are on the rise? Yeah. So we code the motivation of mass shootings, and then we look at how those have changed over time. And we've seen a steady increase with the worst years on record were 27, 2018, and 2019. And it was really motivated by this hate and by these fame seeking shootings. The hate stuff, I mean, those three years during Trump's presidency, there was a lot more kind of publicly hateful rhetoric, I think, and a lot more polarization and just a lot more things on social media that we were seeing that play out. And that kind of made sense to us. This fame seeking thing is strange. In many ways, public mass shootings are performances, right? They are meant to be watched. They are meant to be covered by the media. A lot of perpetrators do things like create manifestos that they leave behind or create YouTube videos or things that they want to go viral after they do it. So it's almost that the mass shooting is this vehicle to get their message out to the world, to have themselves be known. A lot of them will do things like dress up in costumes and film themselves or even check social media while in the middle of the shooting to make sure they're going viral, that there's this piece that they want the world to watch them do this and they are seeking that notoriety. And so in that way, all of us watching do play a role in how it all plays out. And do you find that there's a certain category age range of the fame seekers? 
they tend to be young. So it's typically like 18 to 25 year olds men. Obviously, the mass shooters are angry. Is there a history of violence in most cases? There is. So the majority, it's about two thirds have some sort of violent history, not necessarily criminally charged, um, but some sort of violent history. Domestic violence is common in their backgrounds, both as victims and as perpetrators. So we do see that certainly as something that's sort of on the pathway that you're seeing this escalation. And just a general fascination with guns is really common as well. And what do you say to people when they maybe counter with, you know, if you're talking about a school shooting and they say, well, we have to arm the teachers. What's your answer to that? I think a lot of the things that we do in schools to protect ourselves from mass shooters don't make a lot of sense when you start to really get into the data. So things like arming teachers, putting armed officers, you know, bulletproof doors, security, lockdown drills, that all assumes that the person coming in to do this is A, not suicidal, right? Not intending on being shot during the shooting, which we know they are, and B, that they're outsiders, right? That they are these kind of people you've never seen before rushing into the building, where what we know is that in a school shooting, the person who is by far, far, far the most likely to do it is a student of that school. This is an insider. This is a kid going through the security every single day. This is a kid who knows where our armed officers are, who's been through all the active shooter drills and know exactly how the school is going to respond, right? It's an insider threat which in some ways makes it harder to prevent. In other ways, it makes it easier. But I think a lot of the things that we've been doing really since Columbine for the last you know, 20, 25 years are not working because we didn't really understand who these perpetrators were. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. That was such a great answer. I'm going to follow it up with a similar question. In the circumstance that somebody has a weapon uh, and is present during a mass shooting, anyone who's defending themselves from a mass shooting and then the media gets a hold of the story and and the, the perpetrator was taken down because someone in the crowd had a, had a weapon and fired back, what's your answer to that when people say, well, see, that person just prevented it and he used his weapon or she? Yeah. And I think... That's what we sometimes do as a society when we don't have the database, when we don't have the big full picture of the data as we pick and choose these kind of anecdotes to tell the story that we want to tell. What we found is we did a study where we looked at school shootings or attempted school shootings. So either the person actually committed one or they came in with the intention of firing indiscriminately, heavily armed. And what we found, which was very surprising to us, is that when there was an armed officer on the scene, three times as many people died as when there wasn't. So that to us was a really stunning finding. And I think for us goes to the fact that A, these perpetrators know the armed officer is there, they come in suicidal and they come in with the intention of being shot. And so that armed officer doesn't have the response that you think it would. Wow, because there's um, just more commotion and it's just kind of a wilder scene. Is that the idea? I think it's because the perpetrator knows the officer is there, right? They go to that school. They know there's an armed officer on the scene. So either A, they plan better and they bring more weapons, or B, if their plan is to get shot, they don't really care, right? They come in sort of hot and heavier because they know how the scene is going to play out. So I think it's these insider threats. And we see the same thing, workplace shootings, insiders, 
church shootings insiders. These are people that we're sitting next to you and seeing every day. They're not these scary monsters from the outside. They're kids in our school. They're our coworkers. Those are the people that are going to do this. My uh, wife is a kindergarten teacher and they had active shooter drills uh, just yesterday in uh, that elementary school. And she came home telling me how much she wants a gun in every single uh, classroom in the school. <laughs> Definitely just kidding. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> if, you, if you've ever met his wife, you'd know that she, if she's got a gun, she's got like a Tommy gun. Like she's got something that's taken, taken out cars. Sorry, no, I'm I'm just kidding. I'm not I'm not trying to make light of it, but uh, it just seems so absurd, you know, to picture, uh, you know, teachers have enough to do. I don't know. Well, no, I mean, I, I have seen the footage of students going through tornado drills in, you know, the, the tornado belt, but that's something you can't control. Like, that's probably going to happen at some point. You'll have a the tornado alarm will go off and, and you'll need to run those drills and that's a force of nature. The the fact that you have to do that because some someone who's flipped the switch is is might come in to, to that small school because you just don't know. It's it's terrifying, really. It is. It's heartbreaking. And I've done a lot of work around lockdown drills and thinking about the impact they're having on kids and kind of how we should be doing them. But I don't think we realize the impact it's having on kids necessarily. I mean, kids start going through these in preschool. Some states require up to 10 a year, but all states really require them all the way until they graduate. I have three young kids and I've talked to them about, you know, drills and how casually they will just say, oh, yeah, we had to sit in the middle of the carpet in case bullets come through the windows. Right. Just with the nonchalance that that is almost the scariest thing to me, that it's just part of your everyday experience of being kid, a kid in America is that you have to practice in your school every month for the fact that you might get shot by one of your classmates. I mean, we can't we're leaving this. We're putting this on our kids to rehearse. Well, I don't think it's that big of a problem because the kids can just go down and talk to the school psychologist. They're so prevalent sure. in every school uh, across the nation. <laughs> right. Wouldn't that be nice? Yes. <laughs> Sorry, there's more sarcasm. My jaw dropped when I heard how uh, how few school psychologists there truly are in this uh, country. Yeah, I, mine too, when we got into researching that in the book, just how under-resourced schools are in terms of school-based mental health, social workers, counselors, we just don't fund it. Um, but we do fund things like upgrading all of the doors to bulletproof glass, right? So if we start really thinking about what school safety is in a deep, holistic way, we should really be funding that school-based mental health. Yeah, and to, to stay on the school topic, and I don't know, maybe I'm really beyond caring what other people will think when you when you get political about something like this, because we're not the one that politicized it. Lance, they're nonpartisan. Stop it. The violence <laughs> project is nonpartisan. I, 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 <laughs> I know. But you, you have someone who survives a school shooting. Um, I'll use the example of uh, David Hogg, who turned like the kid is so well-spoken. I I mean, what he's like 17 or 18 years old. He might be 20 now. But when I first heard him speak, I was like, I, I don't even remember what I was doing when I was his age. Like I was, I was an idiot, you know? And, and then you hear him speak and it's like, I want to cast my vote for you for president and you're, <laughs> you're 14. But 
you have someone like that who's come out of it and has become an incredible activist, and then you have a monster like Marjorie Taylor Greene calling him a crisis actor and poisoning people's minds by calling someone like that not legit and, and just attacking him on social media. What is, what is wrong with people? Like, how is that contributing to anything positive? And you, you brought up a good point about the um the funding for counselors and then but you find funding for a bulletproof door and and i'm 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 bringing those two points together where it's like the immediate re- reaction you you can attack somebody like marjorie taylor green attacks david hogg and and you get that immediate like fulfillment and i feel like it's the same thing with the funding of a bulletproof door bulletproof windows like there we go we fixed it like but no one ever looks deeper mhm yeah it, absolutely and i think you know, for schools are under such pressure to look like they're safe, right? Or to look like they've done something or they're doing something. And so somebody with a gun or a bulletproof glass or a metal detector, it looks safe. It feels safe, right? It, And I think that's why schools do it, but it doesn't make any sense, which was the whole point of this project is like, let's start actually using the data that we have to have really rational, sound conversations, right? Data is not political, right? Like data doesn't have an opinion, it just is. And so if you can stay there, then I think you start actually moving forward. What we found is that kind of our messaging, our policy recommendations, the conversations we have, we are really able to cut through kind of both sides of the political spectrum because we're willing to acknowledge this is complicated, there are many problems, there are many solutions, and here's the data that we can talk about. And I think that's how we start moving as a society rather than write these sort of echo chambers on social media that we can all get caught in. Yeah, it's really interesting because this work, you know, your work, it runs against politics. Um, you really can't avoid it with even just putting out these facts. You'll, I'm sure you get both sides being angry about actual data, which is a bit silly. (laughs) And I appreciate you being nonpartisan. I really do. But uh, certain things like what to Lance said, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene says, and and QAnon is mentioned in your book. I mean, there's data there that suggests like conspiracies like that. They don't help. You know, like we're we're not saying the the right are, are all the shooters or anything like that. We're just saying that having QAnon as a conspiracy theory in a political culture doesn't help the idea of people snapping. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as a psychologist, I'm kind of fascinated how we're at this point, right? Like, and we do talk a lot in the book about social media and the impact that it's had, where it used to be that if you thought something bizarre or you were interested in violence or you had some beliefs, you would have to find someone in person that also thought that way, right? Which for school shooters would be really difficult. For people who believe in QAnon would probably be really difficult. But on suddenly with the internet, you have access to anyone. We found you know, evidence of school shooters actually talking to other perpetrators of mass shootings in chat rooms before they go and do it, right? It's this finding of this camaraderie, feeling like you're part of something, feeling like your thoughts are being validated, and then they get exacerbated, right? And you're pushed deeper down these sort of bizarre thinking and bizarre beliefs because you have these other people in your ear. And so I think thinking about as a society, how do we disrupt that? What is the role of social media companies and taking responsibility for the fact that that's what's happening, right? I think those are conversations that we're finally starting to have and will continue to have. 
This is a incredible conversation. I'm loving every minute of it. Some some data points that you had that surprised me. One in particular, I think maybe because we just hear about school shootings more than workplace shootings, but workplace shootings have, that's a higher percentage than school shootings. And you guys even break it down further to the days of the week and the months and everything. Can you go into that data for a little bit? Yeah. So workplace shootings are surprisingly the most common form of mass shootings. They have been going down in the past 10 years, I will say. So they kind of peaked in the 80s and the 90s and the early 2000s, and we're seeing fewer of them, although we still do see them quite a bit. And they're a little bit different. It tends to be a perpetrate, the perpetrators are employees of that workplace, tends to be kind of blue collar, oftentimes in communities where that employer is kind of the main employer of the town or the area. And it tends to be the perpetrator gets fired and they fairly quickly come back and commit a mass shooting, usually with a handgun. Sometimes it's one that they just grab, you know, from their glove box. Um, so they look and feel a little bit different than how we think of these well-planned, you know, performative mass shootings. They tend to be these more reactionary expressions of anger. And what about the days of the weeks and what months these typically happen? Yeah, it's so for school shootings, you tend to see them peak at kind of transitional times in the year. So kind of September, October, then after Christmas break around like January, and then at the end of the year, um, kind of in May, they tend to happen first thing in the morning, often on Wednesdays, which is interesting, but the days of the week kind of fluctuates depending on what category you're looking at. But we do see that there are patterns in terms of this sort of transitional times. And that first thing in the morning, it's interesting. It makes sense that if you're going to do it, you're really going to sit through class and then do it. You're going to kind of come in right away and do it. But again, it goes to that how we rehearse and practice for them. We typically rehearse in the middle of the day. And these typically happen right away in the morning when nobody's even in their classes yet. I was a bit surprised by the race, the, the racial breakdown, I guess. I guess um, I assumed we were going to be talking like 90 percent plus white men, uh, but that wasn't the case. No, um, I think we tend to think of white men when we think of mass shooters because of kind of the media narrative around that. Um, it is majority white men, but it's only slightly more than half. And you see different racial breakdowns depending on kind of what type of mass shooting that you're looking at. So if we're looking at specifically school shootings, there it does tend to be white males. If we're looking at college and university shootings, it's actually more likely to be a non-white male, um, often mixed race or Asian. If you look at workplace shootings, it's about 50-50 black and white men. So it's not as kind of consistently white men as I think the traditional narrative has made us believe. Okay. And did you come up with the uh, tagline for the off-ramp project, the road to violence is long, let's build more exits? Because that, that's awesome. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> we did. Thank you. Nice. <laughs> yeah. And what is the off-ramp project and how do you define holistic violence prevention? Yeah. The off-ramp project is our newest project. And I think we're still kind of adding to it and developing it. But we wanted to make sure that we weren't just identifying all these problem areas and saying, look, here's what the road looks like, here's all the problems. But we wanted to really give people hands-on solutions. 
And like I mentioned, we talked to, you know, moms who said, I didn't know where to go or what to do. And we thought, can we build a website for somebody who's worried about somebody they know, maybe not thinking this person is going to be a mass shooter, but I'm worried about them. What could we make a place, a hub where they could go and find resources, whether that's um, suicide prevention or mental health resources, find training for themselves, find places to maybe volunteer in their communities, but build this kind of violence prevention hub. And when we say holistic, it's about thinking about violence prevention, not just in the traditional sense of police officers and bulletproof doors in our kind of public safety perspective, but taking that kind of bigger picture look about if we're really gonna prevent violence early down the pathway, what do we need to be building and thinking about? Um, so it's our, our latest project that we've recently released. We'd love for people to check it out. We're still kind of adding resources to it and building it as we go. Very cool. And where can we find that? That is offramp.org. Great. Thank you. You have training videos there. What can one expect when they watch one of your training videos? Yeah, we attempted to turn a lot of our findings into these kind of tangible strategies that people could train themselves on. So we have training focused on skills and crisis intervention. So things like what to do non-verbally, what to say, what environment to create, what headspace for you to be in. So de-escalation skills, suicide prevention skills, how to actually ask someone about suicide, what to say when you hear different responses. We have training in how to build crisis teams in your school or in your workplace or in your community center or in your library, what those teams can look like training around things like media literacy and social media. So part of it is a brief presentation of the data and then training videos that provide people with these really hands-on skills. One thing I was curious about, we, we've done these shows for a while and uh, some of these shows include work on um, serial killers and things like that. And we always noticed that in that research that there was a history of hurting animals and arson and things like that that repeated in those people's childhood. Was there anything like that in the research of the mass shooters? You know, it was not common. It's not something we saw a lot of. Sometimes though, and for example, I think in the background of the Oxford high school shooting perpetrator, history of animal abuse is starting to emerge. Part of that, you know, as a psychologist, I think about animal abuse, fire setting things being related to um, sort of severe childhood trauma, right? So that you have that first and then that's a response, but we tend to focus on the response rather than the early childhood trauma being kind of the real precursor. It's not something that we saw often, but again, it's one of those things that doesn't necessarily make the media. And so it's harder to really code unless you're actually talking to the perpetrators themselves. And do you ever get anybody asking you or, or accusing you of wanting to, quote, take our guns away? And how do you deal with that? Like, oh, well, all you guys want to do is take our guns away. You know, we don't want to take guns away. I think we want to build a database that if you are interested in how guns are used in mass shootings, we have the data for you. But I think we just try to stay really focused on the data, right? And so, you know, the one thing in common that all mass shootings have is the perpetrators have guns, right? And so you can't get around that. But thinking about how they get it, when they get it, 
Um, we have a whole chapter in the book that's really focused on kind of all the loopholes that perpetrators found to get hold of guns legally that they really shouldn't have had. And a lot of the policy implications for our research around firearms are things that really have pretty widespread public support, right? So things like safe storage, things like closing illegal loopholes, right? Regulating private sales. They're things that a lot of people generally support on both sides of the aisle, whether you own guns or you don't own guns. Looking at all of the uh, factors that go into the character makeup of a mass shooter, there's a stat here that says that psychosis played nearly no role for almost 70%. Can you define that? Because I, I think that a lot of people dismiss that as like, oh, that person's psychotic. Yeah, we took a really close look at psychosis because mass shootings so often get blamed on mental illness in the media that we really wanted to look at psychosis in particular. So psychosis is experiencing delusions or hallucinations. It's typically the symptom that people are talking about when they're talking about mental illness that they blame on mass shootings. So we took a deep dive and really looked at how many people were experiencing psychosis when they were planning the shooting or perpetrating the shooting and what kind of role that delusional thinking played. And we found that it played some role in about 30%. It was kind of the primary factor in about 10% of cases. So in those 10% of cases, the person was actively psychotic. They committed it because they were thinking delusionally, you know, mental health, high quality, easily accessible mental health treatment probably would have prevented those shootings in that 10% of cases. But in the other 90%, it's a lot more complicated. And 70%, it plays absolutely no role. So I think, again, it's we can't say that mental illness does not play a, a role in mass shootings. It certainly does. We can't say it's responsible for all mass shootings. You have to have this more nuanced, complex conversation about it. And that's what our sort of data found. And I'm going to add another word there. I think you need to have nuanced and patient conversation. I feel like a lot of people start to lose their patience when you get into the into the nitty gritty of it. Yeah, that's a good point. Another reason why we were like, we have to write a book. And when people ask me questions, I just want to be like, go read the book. I feel like I need you to read all 250 pages and then we can talk, right? It's so complicated that these are not things that, you know, it's not mental illness versus guns. It's really complicated conversations and nuanced policy around mental illness and guns. And that's what the data shows. And so we have to, I think, be patient enough and willing enough to go there. I mean, that would have been easier, right? That would have been like a lot more clear uh, path to fix the problem. So like if that was the problem, I'm sure you would be uh, screaming from the rooftops. Uh, and obviously you are you are as is, but it's a complicated problem and not a, a simple fix. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Jillian Peterson, your book, The Violence Project, is incredible. I urge all of our listeners to check it out, read it, or listen to it. And check out theviolenceproject.org. A lot of incredible info there. And a very, very important button on that website, donate, and go to the Learn More tab and the little drop down, and there's a donate button there. So click that uh, and support them. I think uh, Crawlspace Media is about to make a uh, donation in the next few minutes. But yeah, amazing conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.